You are now listening to the May 6th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the fruit of the Spirit, sermon, and equipping the saints. First, let's start with the fruit of the Spirit. Hello, this is Terry with the fruit of the Spirit, a time in which we confess our hearts to the Lord. In this program, we are sharing the characteristics of the fruit of the Holy Spirit found in the book of Galatians. The world we live in today changes very fast. We get to enjoy a lot of convenience from that, but that can also make us become very impatient. We are used to everything getting done fast. That also reminds us there is the thing called patience. Especially for those of us who struggle with bearing pains or trials, the Lord has a lot to teach us about patience. We should know that the patience the Lord speaks of is very different from the laziness in which we would not do anything and just wait for time to pass. It is this patience that the fourth characteristic of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Patience as a characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit is about waiting and trusting in God's timing. It is not about taking action hurriedly on our own without having faith in God's promises. It is about offloading all our discomfort and pain in His hands. It means waiting for the fulfillment of God's will, acknowledging God, despite the trials and sufferings in the present. How do you react when something doesn't go as planned or the result is not what you had hoped it would be? Do you try your best to correct it, hoping maybe you might be able to fix it yourself? When we attempt to try to solve problems on our own, we can easily become impatient and even desperate. When we put all our efforts into resolving the problem, we may get overwhelmed and the situation becomes all-consuming. When things do not happen quickly, we become desperate. We feel like we're all alone out there and we may overlook asking God for help. We may completely forget about God and become totally oblivious to God's timing. Then we find ourselves drifting away from the love, thanksgiving, joy, and peace that God so richly gives to those who are patient. We live in a world filled with sin. In this world, even as we live as Christians, we cannot be completely free from the authority of sin that tries to overthrow God as the Lord of our lives. Jesus said the reason he came to the world was not to judge sinners and the world, but to save them. We will experience the blessing of encountering God when we remember the fact that Jesus came to the world to save us. We would then trust God and have patience even through our sufferings and trials. Also, the Spirit leads us to trust God and would give us strength to obey God in each and every moment of our lives. But if our hearts disregard God, we may never experience the power of patience and we end up committing a sin of not acknowledging the perfect wisdom and sovereignty of God. James chapter 5 teaches us about how being patient is ultimately related to the coming of Jesus. Verse 7 says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. Farmers must wait patiently and hope for the joy of harvesting. We also have to endure the sufferings in this world and wait for the time when God will reveal himself to us. In verse 10, James talks about the prophets who suffered because they spoke in the name of the Lord. We should not consider it strange when there are obstacles and difficulties when trying to do the Lord's good work. In verse 11, James says, We count those blessed who endured and makes reference to Job's suffering and his endurance. The emphasis is on how the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. When we endure the burden and the pain of suffering and still obey God continually, we will be able to experience who the Lord is and come to trust Him. Being patient requires trust in God. How can we be patient if we do not have trust in God? Only with distrust we are able to endure whatever hardships that may lie before us. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 19 and 20 says this, For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there 
if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. These verses show us the endurance that God favors and teaches us how we can endure sufferings as well. Are there any of you who are in suffering right now? Are you in the midst of asking a question, Lord, until when? The Lord is compassionate and merciful. He came to save us because He loved us. He is still working beside us in order to fulfill God's righteousness, even through our suffering. I pray that we will all remember this and endure each moment with trust in our Lord. I hope that we will be able to praise the Lord's perfect loving kindness and give thanks at the end of suffering. This concludes today's message on Fruit of the Spirit. I'll see you next week. Goodbye. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Cavalry Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, You Can Have Confidence. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Let's open our Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which kind of sets the tone for the passage that we're looking at in Acts 18. This tells us how Paul was, well, his experience as he entered into Corinth, which is described in Acts 18. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you in the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul is sharing his heart here. He's an apostle, yes, but he's not Superman. You see that? He's saying he's just like you and me. I look at this and he says, I was weak, I was uh, trembling, I was afraid when I came to Corinth. Sometimes that we face that cause us to have a similar response as Paul. I'm weak, I'm afraid, I'm trembling. 
I mean, hard times like you're a single working mom and you wonder how are you going to raise these kids all by yourself? What a task. I've lost my job, maybe, and I'm running out of money, and I'm going to lose my house. Or you may be diagnosed with cancer, and you're thinking, how am I going to get through this experience? Or you're in your elder years, and you are looking at your years ahead, and you're wondering what it's going to be like, who's going to take care of you. Or you're just starting your family, and you are wondering how on earth you're going to afford the doctor's visits and the formula and the diapers. You know, it's like $50 a week. Or you're moving away to go to college, and you have no idea what to expect. I mean, these are times when you can feel weak and fearful and filled with anxiety. But in every one of those situations, you're trusting in God. Okay, that's not the issue. But you just don't see help on the horizon yet. You're trusting God. Now, Paul could say, I'm weak, he says, I'm fearful, I'm trembling, and I think he had a good reason for it. He maybe experienced a little bit of PTSD right here, because if we look back, if you can remember what he had experienced earlier in the months before, you'll understand why he could be thinking this way. Because you look back and you go to Acts chapter 16, you see that Paul And Silas were beaten, and they were thrown into prison, and they didn't know what was going to happen to them. And for months, their backs had to have ached. God opened the doors. They were set free. But they still went through the beating. In Acts chapter 17, Paul was in Thessalonica, and he was ministering there, and God was blessing. And then a mob formed and began a riot, and they were seeking to kill Paul, so he had to flee. Chapter 17 says, and he had to go to Berea and went to Berea. And when he was in Berea, there was a great response to the gospel. But that same mob that were in Thessalonica, they came to Berea. And so Paul had to run away again. Then he went to Athens. And when he was in Athens, here he is. He's preaching, presenting the gospel with great philosophers. And really, there is not much there at all. That's a little discouraging after you've gone through all of this. So I can understand how he's feeling the way he is. He's maybe a little insecure. I know the Apostle Paul is strong. And uh, someday in heaven when I meet him, I don't want him to say, hey, why were you saying those things about me? But I'm just saying he was human, right? He wasn't Superman. He was human. He experienced these things like we do. And when you think about it, for most people, just one of these issues would be enough for them to say, you know, God, I just can't move forward. I'm too weak, or I'm too afraid, or I'm too anxious, or I can't even think about stepping into this kind of stuff again. But though the Apostle Paul experienced these things, they didn't stop him from moving forward and following God's plan for his life. You can't let that happen either. Paul found courage to walk into Corinth because he had confidence. He could walk into Corinth because he had confidence. He had confidence, and as I'm looking at this portion of the scriptures, he had confidence in three things. He had confidence in God's presence, he had confidence in God's promises, and he had confidence in God's power. God's presence, God's promises, and God's power. He's coming to a new city. He doesn't know anybody in the city. He doesn't have a job lined up in a city. How's he going to make a living? He doesn't know anybody in the city. He ends up living with strangers, basically, as he moves into the place. He didn't know what to expect. And I, when I came to you, brothers, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He felt totally inadequate. Common troubles today, right? When we face them, we can be confident of God's presence, okay? Write it down, remember it. You can be confident of God's presence. Say that. I can be confident in God's presence. The Lord assured Paul that he was with him. Hold your place. Don't run away from this place. And go to chapter 18 of Acts. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Say that. Do not be afraid. But go on speaking. Don't be silent, for I'm with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city. 
So of course Paul will think, oh no, is this going to be a repeat of Philippi, of Thessalonica, of Berea, of, you know, is this going to be a repeat? And the Lord said, Paul, here's my promise, do not fear. I'm with you, nothing's going to happen to harm you. Now, we're going to find out that it looked like something was going to happen, and Paul would be harmed, but Paul hung on to the promise. No matter how things look, we've got to believe and hold on to the promises which are sure. The promises of God are reality. They're reality. When we face those, we can be confident in God's promises. Are you weak? Are you facing obstacles and troubles that are beyond your ability to cope with? I want you to understand something. I want us to remember something, that weakness is something Jesus really understands. Weakness is something Jesus really understands. Are you weak? Jesus really understands that. Really? Yes, hold your place here in Acts 18. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I'm saying weakness is something that Jesus understands. I think that's a little complicated, the way that's translated. I'm going, what? Let me read it out of the New Living Translation for you. I think it just kind of smooths it out. So listen. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help when we need it most. And then I've got to look at it. I thought, well, I wonder what does it say out of Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the New Testament, the message. How did he paraphrase this? And that just won my heart. Okay, listen. We don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. Amen? He's been through weakness and testing, experienced it all, all but the sin. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take the mercy, accept the help. Amen. You take the mercy, walk right up to him, because Jesus understands weakness. Jesus encouraged his disciples with that promise that we have confidence in. He says to his disciples, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we can trust and have confidence in his presence. As Paul was facing fear and anxiety, he also had confidence in God's promises, When we're fearful, we've got to remember that we can have the confidence in God's promises, just like he did. Look at Acts 18, 9. We read it. Just want you to see it again. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, don't be afraid, but go on speaking. Don't be silent, for I'm with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. God's promise. According to one account, there are 3,573 promises in the Bible. Not all of them would be any we would want for ourselves. God promises wrath sometimes and all. Strong encouragement, though, in the scriptures. You can have confidence in God's promises and act on them. There's an illustration in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. King Hezekiah has this news that an enemy is coming that has an army that is bigger than his and outguns his completely. So, I mean, there is no hope on the horizon. And yet, this is what the Lord came and said to him. Look at verse 7, what it says. It says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. Amen? God is with us. Hey, the world has the arm of flesh. There's the strength of the world, okay? But God continuously says, don't fear man, fear me. All right? Don't fear people, fear God. 
Put your trust, your reverence in God. And God says, with the world, they have worldly weapons, but we have the Lord our God to fight our battles. That's a promise. What are you facing? What is the horde that's coming toward you right now? You're like, I'm outgunned here. I'm outnumbered. There's no way I can meet my needs. There's no way I can be taken care of. What is it? And God's saying, I love the word he gives, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed. Strong, courageous, don't be afraid or dismayed. Why? For there are more with us than with him. I mean, you've got God, you have this holy angel sent to minister to you. There's nothing that can constrict God or his power. We have the promises of God. Hang on to these. Hang on to the promises. How many times does God say, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear? How many times do I forget that God says, do not fear? As Paul was experiencing fear and anxiety, he also had confidence in God's power. God's presence, God's promises, and now in God's power. Looking back at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3, 4, and 5, he says, And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and my message are not in fancy arguments, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And when Paul says it wasn't with persuasive, eloquent words, there's nothing wrong with having a great message and having a logical presentation. Paul did that, but Paul's saying, look, it wasn't me. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. Because for one thing, I was weak. I was fearful. I was trembling. So obviously, it wasn't about me. It was about the Holy Spirit who used me, and so all the glory goes to God. But he says, my message and my preaching were very plain. And rather than using some kind of clever, persuasive speeches, I relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. And boy, did the Holy Spirit work. Go back now to Acts chapter 18. Look at verses 4 through 8. Got a little background here. This is incredible. You ready for something incredible? Besides what we've already seen today. Oh, let's start with verse 1. After Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth, and now we wouldn't know, we would just say, oh, and he went to Corinth, blah, 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 blah. But thankfully, we have 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 you know, through 5, right? So we understand how he was feeling when he went into Corinth, right? He left Athens, he went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, the Roman emperor, commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was the same trade, he stayed with them, and he worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And here we go. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade or convince Jews and Greeks That's with the gospel. It was of Christ and him crucified. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ Messiah was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Isn't that just amazing? The Jews kick him out, and so he says, okay, where can we meet? Titus just says, well, my house is right next to the synagogue. You want to make it easy? Let's, just, let's meet right there. How galling, right? And so some are going to synagogue. Some are going into Titus Justice's house. How galling for the leader of the synagogue. Well, let's read on. His house was next door to the, and Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were what? Baptized. Remember in the book of Acts, believe, baptize, believe, baptize, believe, baptize. Why do we put so much time between the time we accept Jesus and we're baptized? Just believe, be baptized. So many Corinthians and Crispus's entire household say, you get one person and often you get the whole family. 
And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, again, don't be afraid, but go on speaking. Don't be silent, for I'm with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was consul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was going to defend himself, Gallio, the governor, said to the Jews, you know, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since this is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. Now, what did the Lord promise Paul earlier? He says, don't be afraid. Nobody's going to harm you. This would have been a time I would have really needed to hang on to God's promise. How about you guys? Because I also would have remembered, sometimes it goes the other way. It did in Philippi. It did in some other places. But God says, look, you're going to be all right. Nothing's going to happen to you. So Paul is standing on that. He's going to defend himself. The governor says, wait, I'm not going to hear this. Verse 16, and he drove them from the tribunal Verse 17, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to them. I have a smiley face on the margin of my Bible by verse 17. They beat Sosthenes. You can imagine the hatred Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, must have had for He replaced Crispus once Crispus was saved with his household, right? And Sosthenes was determined to oppose Paul's teaching about Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross. So his plan was to destroy Paul, but his plan backfired. And rather than Paul being punished, he was beaten by Gallio in front of the judgment seat instead of Paul. How humiliating, right? But look at how the power of God worked. This is what is so sweet. It appears that the power of the Spirit transformed even Sosthenes' heart. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here's the man who wanted to basically have Paul killed. And look at Paul's greeting in 1 Corinthians 1.1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother who? Sosthenes. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Man, this is the grace of God. This is the power of God, right? To take some of your greatest enemy in town and turn around, and now he's with you, and he's ministering with you, and he's writing back to the Corinthians, and he's saying, yeah, Sos is no longer the bad guy. He is serving with me. I mean, he's mentioned right at the beginning with It's an example of the power of the Holy Spirit transforming life. A little hope here for everybody. You got that family member? Everybody has a Sosthenes in their lives, right? Could be that person ends up, and Jesus Christ, and our brother, whoever, or our sister, whomever that might be. Never give up hope, amen? Your worst enemy can be transformed by the power of God. Remember, with them is the arm of flesh, but with us, us is the Lord God who will fight our battles for us. I don't know what we'll face in the coming days. You don't know what the, the next year or so holds for us. I don't know, two years from now. I don't know a week from now, guys. But I do know that I can hang on to the fact that Jesus Christ is present with me all the time. I always have my Savior. I always have my friend with me. I'm never alone. Secondly, I can believe his promises I can trust his promises. If he says something, then I might want to freak out on the inside, but I need to just stay calm because reality is a promise of God, not necessarily what I'm experiencing in the flesh. And thirdly, man, God has power. God has power at his disposal to defend you, to take care of you, to provide for you, and to transform those who are against you. Amen? That's those promises that we have in God's word. That's our hope. Let's pray together. Lord, there are those of us that just need to hear that, that we can trust the promise that you gave us. 
And despite how things look, you told us something, and we're going to believe it, and we're going to hang on to this. Faith isn't seeing. Faith is both leaving what we cannot see. For some of us, we just need to know you're with us, and there's no way that you could be separated from us. You know our weaknesses. Sometimes we just feel so bad, but we're reminded, Lord, that you understand us, and we can come, and we can just run right up to your throne of grace and, and accept the gift and the help that you offer us. Thank you for the power. You've changed our lives. You're changing our lives. You'll change our world. We ask that we would move in the power of the Holy Spirit spirit we wouldn't be walking in the flesh but we'd be walking in the spirit see victory and change in our own lives and we think of those people right now or that person that is like Sosthenes. right now we ask lord that you'll do whatever it takes with mercy to bring that person to know you in jesus name and everybody said amen Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul Ministries on podcast. You can easily play this week or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your vice in only a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries at your iTunes store now. following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Where he is going to destroy this present heavens and earth. Folks, the first creation is corrupted with sin. And Jesus Christ makes us right through faith in him, but he will also bring forth, as we will see, a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. 
So with that in mind, looking at our passage today, we have the motivation from what God has declared. The motivation for how we should be thinking as believers, how we should be acting. There's a motivation for us based on the fact that Christ is coming. He will bring forth judgment, but he also is patient and saving. Notice in our passage in verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what things is he speaking of? Well, what he just talked about. The day of the Lord in which, verse 10 in the middle, the heavens will pass away with a roar. Gone. And the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? Who should we be as believers? What ought we to be? What type of people should we be? You notice it should cause us here to think about the reality of God's judgment on sin and what he did by bringing salvation in Jesus and what he's going to do. It should cause the beloved in Christ, the redeemed, to have lives characterized by holy conduct and godliness. And that, as we will see, is from the inside, not from the outside. It'll reflect in the outside. Notice this term, ought. It speaks of an absolute obligation. It speaks of being indebted. Since all these things should be destroyed this way, what should we, what ought we to be? What sort of people should we be? And that's a good question. What should believers be like in light of God's coming again in judgment? What should we be like? Notice he says we ought to be in the context in holy conduct and godliness. The term conduct speaks of our behavior. When you think of your conduct, it's what you do, it's how you do it, it's how you behave, it's your lifestyle, how you are, right? And notice he says in holy conduct. Now, a lot of people think of the term holy as some stuffy people sitting there like this in the church. That's holiness, right? Well, that's not what holiness is in the Bible. What is it? What is holiness? When he says, what sort of people ought you to be believers in holy conduct? What is holy conduct? What is holiness? Well, the term holy at its very core speaks of being separate or set apart. When it is applied to specifically God, it speaks of his absolute transcendence above his creation, being separate and distinct from it. And also yet within scripture we see it speaks of his total separation from sin. He is holy. It is slightly synonymous with righteousness, as we're going to see. There's a parallel with it. When you think of holiness, we're going to think of also righteousness. Turn to Revelation chapter 15. And here we have... The song of Moses, when those during the Great Tribulation were victorious over the beast in his image, singing the song of Moses. Revelation chapter 15, verse 2. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of gold. This is a heavenly scene, by the way. We can't totally understand it. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, singing, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are thy ways. Righteous and true are thy ways. The way he functions, right? Thou King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou alone art holy. For all the nations will come worship before thee, for thy righteous acts have been revealed. We see a parallel between holiness and righteousness. Now for the scriptures, we see that God is holy, but yet God is willing through Christ to impart his holiness to believers. You know, the term saint means holy one or holy. You know, we're saints. We're holy in position. When we trust in Jesus Christ, we are cleansed of our sin. We are set apart from sin. We are holy. But we're going to see there is also an element of our sanctification. How do we live? And practically speaking, for the believer, holiness is conformity to the righteous character of God. 
Holiness is conformity to the righteous character of God. Take a look, and this is where I see this also. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12, and the context is discipline, that God disciplines his children. That's the context. Hebrews chapter 12, and we see this here, that as we are disciplined, it is for the goal of sharing in his holiness. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9 Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, speaking of the earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, this is the middle of verse 10, disciplines us for our good. What? That we might share in what? His holiness. And notice what he says. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. I'll tell you that right now. When God spanks you, not fun in the moment, right? Or if our parents discipline us, not fun in the moment. But notice what he says. But not joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been gumnazo, gymnazo is where we get the word gymnasium from, who've been trained by it, afterwards, it yields what? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. You see, when we share in His holiness, we are manifesting His righteousness. And it is peaceful. We're going to see later on, be diligent to be found in Him in peace. So we have holiness. We have holiness. The reality that God is holy, and yet God brings forth and allows us to share in His holiness as we trust in and abide in Jesus Christ. True believers, holiness is conformity to the righteous character of God. He is righteous and his righteousness is manifest in us. You know, the reality is, again, it's holiness and righteousness are contrary to sinfulness. Let me read a portion of Revelation 22, verse 11. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. Let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Holiness is the opposite of doing wrong. It is being separate from sin. And when we think of holy conduct, think of righteous actions. Holy conduct, think of righteous actions. Well, how is this possible for us to be holy? We are so sinful. We mess up so much. right? How is it that we are holy? Well, first and foremost, you must be in Christ. You must have trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You can't do it on your own. If you try, it becomes hypocrisy. It becomes outward religiousness. It's not true from the heart. It's hypocrisy. We need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But once we become his children, he gives us a desire to obey him. Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And look at verse 14. He says, as obedient children, or children of obedience, literally, we're children of God now, we have the ability to obey Him by faith. He says, do not be conformed or molded into the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy also yourselves in what? All your behavior. We're called to be like God. And the only way we can be like God is when we abide in Him and trust Him. You see, God takes His Word and works it in our thinking and causes us to make different decisions as we trust Him and obey Him, as we abide in Him and His Word in us. You see, we need to understand the process of holiness. It is putting off one's thinking, not being conformed to the way I used to think, but allowing God's Word to change my mind that I might then trust Him and obey Him and walk in the context of holiness. You see, apart from trusting in Jesus Christ, we can do nothing. It's in the context of relying on Him, allowing His Word to refresh my mind, not being conformed to the way I used to think, which was all about me, rather than trusting and walking in Him. So walking with Him is the process of being conformed to His image, changing our hearts and minds, being transformed. He says, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. God's calling us to it. He has called us. The ultimate goal is that we would be holy before Him, holy and blameless before Him. He saved us. We are holy in His sight because of Jesus, but yet He is practically speaking, causing us to live differently. And there are some motivations for that. 
in light of God's judgment on this earth for sin, and as we'll see, a new heavens and new earth, how should we live in holy conduct? How should we live? We should be living differently. And notice back in our passage in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, not good, right? At least initially, we want it to come, but we want people to be saved, right? He says here, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct? It's a rhetorical question, right? What should you be? Obviously, we should be living lives of holiness, right? And then he says, and godliness. What should we be? It's not just simply our righteous conduct on this earth towards one another. It's not simply that. It's also our attitudes towards the living God. Godliness. The word comes from the Greek word eusebia. You meaning well. Sabiamai meaning reverence. The word reflects an inner attitude of reverence and worship for God, which manifests in pleasing activity. Godliness. Remember we saw back in chapter 1 about godliness? Look back in chapter 1, verse 2. He says in verse 2 of chapter 1, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Life is our holy conduct, by the way. And then godliness, our demeanor towards God and thus our actions. Everything, right? Everything we need. Notice he says in verse 4, For by these he has granted us his precious and magnificent promises. We have the word of God, which is God's powerful word, which changes our hearts and enables us to see things differently and thus walk differently. We have his word. We have his word. And then notice, I shared this also, it should change our behavior. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. Now for this very reason, for the reason of the reality that we have everything we need, we've got God's word. This very reason, he says, applying all diligence in your faith, you're trusting Jesus, supply moral excellence in your moral excellence, knowledge in your knowledge, self-control in your self-control, perseverance in your perseverance, godliness. Aha. You see, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought we, believers in Jesus, be in holy conduct and godliness? This should be convicting if some of your conduct isn't right. If some of your actions aren't right, so your attitudes towards the Lord or others are not right, should be convicting. And notice he says this, he qualifies this statement. Back in our passage, look at verse 12. He qualifies it. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the earth and its elements will melt with intense heat. Now the grammar of verses 11 and 12 is such. The main Verb is what sort of people ought you to be? And then there's two participles, looking and hastening. What should we be in our conduct and godliness as we are looking and hastening? Looking for and hastening. What does this mean? The term looking for speaks of a continual anticipation or expectation or awaiting. You know, if you've got someone who's gone on a trip and they're coming back and you're staying there waiting, you're waiting for them to come back. You're expecting them. There's an expectation. Continual anticipation or expectation. Then the term hastening speaks of an urging something on, an eagerness for something to happen soon. Hasting. I want this to happen. My desire is for this to happen. Now, it's translated in a way that makes it sound like we can make it happen faster. That's not what it means. We're not going to make Jesus come any faster. It's a desire on us, hastening. Oh, come, come, Lord Jesus. Since all these things are be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening, but what? Hastening or urging or desiring to happen, urging on, come, Lord Jesus, what? What does he say? The coming of the day of God. We should be eager and awaiting the coming of the day of God. And in the context, it's the coming of Christ for him to have his day. It's, as we saw earlier, the day of the Lord. He's going to come again, right? He's going to come again, and that's that day of judgment and destruction. But we'll see in a minute there's also something that's really wonderful for believers. A new heavens and a new earth. 
You see, we should have a desire and we should be looking forward to not sinners being destroyed in judgment, as we're going to see, because we're to regard this time as salvation. But we should be looking forward to God making it right. When everybody has rejected Christ, that he makes it right for those who have rejected him by destroying them in punishment, and for those who have accepted him and trusted him and been forgiven, there is a new heavens and a new earth. We should be looking forward and hastening the day. This world is lousy. There's sin, there's death, there's sorrow, there's pain, there's crying. You know, you can have a little fun here and there, but there's always the reminder of sin. Some of you may be hurting really badly right now. You may have issues in your life that are causing you to be distressed. This world is not good right now. It is not good. It is immersed in sin. But God's going to make that right. And we as believers should be focused on that. We should have an eager anticipation for God to do what he has promised. Turn to Philippians chapter 3, Philippians 3, and I want to share some passages about how believers should have this mindset. He's actually saying, Peter's saying, hey, this is your mindset, but how should you live in light of this, right? Looking forward and hastening. And if it isn't our mindset, then I'll tell you right now, we've been caught up in this world, our mind has been distracted from the things God would have us think about. And that's probably why our lives are so messed up, right? We need to focus on the things above. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Brethren, join me in following my example and observe those who walk, this is Paul writing, according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I've often told you, and now I tell you weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is their destruction, whose God is their appetite, or their desires, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Now, Christians don't just ignore the reality of what's going on here. We don't set our minds on it. We see it from a different perspective. Notice what he says. For our citizenship is in heaven. Now, for the Philippians, their citizenship in Rome was pretty important. He's saying, hey, our citizenship is in heaven. From which also we, what? Eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power which he has to subject all things to himself. We're going to be glorified when Jesus comes. He's going to make us righteous in every way. Our souls have been redeemed. Our bodies are going to be glorified. Tremendous, wonderful reality. Now, the day of the Lord, ultimately a little timing for you. For believers right now, God is gracious. We are not going to go through his wrath. Jesus is going to come and take his church out of the way. And that's what we're seeing. here. we're eagerly awaiting that, right? But what comes from that and is associated with that is ultimately him making everything right and then a new heavens and a new earth. And we see all these things together. You see, the Thessalonians, after three weeks of salvation, they understood. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you've been saved more than three weeks, I would recommend to read, obviously, the Bible, but read 1 Thessalonians. This is what Paul taught them in the first three weeks of their faith. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. For they themselves report about what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They believed the gospel, they were saved, they repented, right? And what? To wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. If you're a believer, we should be thinking about the reality of what Christ has promised and what he will do. You see, if you're comfortable in this life, Something's wrong. It's full of sin and sorrow and wickedness. Not saying we can't enjoy and have joy in the Lord in the midst of these things, but it is full of sin, sorrow, and wickedness. Turn to Titus chapter 2, a little farther up. Titus chapter 2. Tell you right now, if we are not heavenly minded, focused on Christ and what he's ultimately going to do, we're not going to walk in holy conduct and godliness. Tell you that right now. We're going to get caught up in the stuff and the issues and stuff, and our minds are going to be messed up. We've got to renew our minds. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The offer is open to all of you. God's grace has come in Jesus. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly, notice these words, in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. 
It is an integral part of a true believer's life to have an expectation of Christ's coming again. Integral part. And he says, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. The bad guys will distract you into the issues of this life. That's what the teaching is going to be like. You're going to be all about yourself and all about this life. It's like a fountain of water, you think, but there's nothing there. We need to get our hearts and minds on the truth.
singing glory, glory. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.